So let's read God's word, 1 Thessalonians 3, and then I'll explain why in a minute. This is God's word. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. You may be seated. So I made a big mistake in that uh, the last couple of days I have been doing a lot of work in 1 Thessalonians 3, and been excited about it. I printed it out, and I'm all ready to talk about it today, and I'm fixing to talk about it. But the bulletin says 1 Thessalonians 2. And the fact of the matter is that all this work I was doing, I forgot that this work was for December the 4th, which I'll be back in two weeks. So in two weeks, I promise, come back, and we'll go back to 1 Thessalonians 2. So I apologize. Uh, can't believe I made another mistake, but there it goes. Okay, so let's look at 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 13. Uh, as we return to this letter, I just want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open to the passage for, day, for today during our message. Uh, in the earlier messages and the earlier verses and chapters in 1 Thessalonians, there are several, two, several things that we can remember. Uh, in the first five verses of chapter 1, we can see the good root of the church in Thessalonica, that root being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. In the second half of the first chapter, there is the good reputation of the church, which had in just a few months 
spread beyond Macedonia and Achaia to everywhere, serving the living and true God and waiting for Jesus from heaven. In chapter 2, we'll see soon the good relationship of the church with the missionaries and how the church weathered severe opposition by the unbelieving community. And we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Today we'll be looking at chapter 3. The main thought I would like to give you today is to consider that the Lord provides richly for his church, loving it and giving love in it. You could title it, A Good Provider. He loves and protects and grows his church. And he gives love to the church by providing a rich, loving environment among the saints. There are three aspects to this theme today. First, the trusted ministry of Timothy in Thessalonica. And that's in verses 1 through 5. Second, the great report of Timothy to Paul and its effect in verses 6 through 10. And third, the rich prayer of blessing from the missionaries in verses 11 through 13. Let's look at the trusted ministry of Timothy. Let me remind you a little bit about Timothy. He was younger than Paul. He was likely brought to Christ maybe during Paul's first missionary journey in Lystra, where Paul was stoned and left for dead. Then a couple of years later, Paul went back through Lystra on his second missionary journey. And there he called Timothy to accompany him. That was just a short time before the three missionaries, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, went to Macedonia and Thessalonica. Timothy seems to have been young and timid by nature, but that did not hurt his usefulness to the Lord and to Paul in the missionary effort. You can see in the first sentence, verses 1 through 3, that the group agreed Timothy should return to Thessalonica. These missionaries were having unbearable suffering. These missionaries were suffering not because of persecution from those outside the church. No, they were suffering because of their concern for the church in Thessalonica. Verse 1, when we could bear it no longer. That's the suffering. They could not bear it. How did that come about? Well, a few months before, they had needed to leave Thessalonica quickly at night after being arrested and released. And we read about that in Acts 17. Then they went to Berea, but the opposition from the Jews in Thessalonica had chased the missionaries out of Berea too. Paul had been quickly taken away and escorted with friends to Athens with Silas and Timothy staying longer in Berea and then heading back to Macedonia and rejoining Paul later. We read about these things in Acts. They were concerned for their beloved friends in Thessalonica being persecuted and being such a tender young congregation. They were tender, they were young, but they were a good church. That concern had grown to the point that they had to find out how the church was doing. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy agreed that Timothy should return and minister the church and do fact-finding as well. This is about the year A.D. 50, maybe in the fall. Paul then evangelized in Athens briefly, then went to Corinth where he stayed about 18 months. During this prolonged ministry in Corinth, Silas and Timothy rejoined him, and this is likely when the first letter to the Thessalonians was written, 
about the end of A.D. 50 or early A.D. 51. So the church in Thessalonica is young, but it's healthy. Let's look at the way Timothy's mission to Thessalonica is described in these verses. He's described in three ways. First, he is called their brother. Of course, meaning their brother in the faith, a member of the family of God. It also may be that Timothy was called their brother because of the shared ministry as missionaries. Second, he is called God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, meaning that he's involved in doing God's work alongside of God and alongside of the other missionaries. He is actively involved in the missionary ministry. That means that he's walking in the way of the Lord. He's walking in faith. He's sharing his faith. And he's doing the work of building the church, the family of God. A central aspect of the work he is doing is to explain the gospel of Christ, to tell people about the life and ministry of Christ, appropriately focusing on the death of Christ and his resurrection, and particularly the fact that Jesus' death provided satisfaction to the Father and forgiveness of sin to all who believe. I'm sure he said these things. He also undoubtedly taught that Jesus' perfect life provided that his righteousness is attributed to all of us who live by faith, including those in Thessalonica. God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. That's a great term for Timothy. And it's a good term for any minister of the gospel. In fact, it provides a definition of a minister of the gospel. God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Third, Timothy was sent with a specific purpose to establish and exhort the Thessalonian church in their faith. This purpose is completely in line with his position as God's co-worker. He is to be establishing the church and he does it by teaching the truths of the gospel and the truths of how to walk in faith, how to walk in the way of the Lord, and how to remain steadfast. As he teaches and as he encourages and exhorts, Timothy is using the truths of recent history, recounting the ministry of Christ, and he'll be using the prophecies of the Old Testament that have been fulfilled. His purpose is that the church will become stronger in faith, more steadfast, with more joy. It's worth being reminded that Timothy was working for the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, working to expand the kingdom of God in the world. Just like we are all to do. That's what Timothy is doing. He's making that church stronger in Thessalonica. He is expanding the kingdom of God. That's what the church today does. The church reaches out and our mandate is to evangelize the world. <clears throat> that's ever since, this is off track now, but that's ever since Genesis 1, <clears throat> when God created Adam in his image, his likeness, he told him to exercise dominion over the earth. And by dominion over the earth, that dominion also includes spreading the truth of the goodness of God and expanding the kingdom. Before sin ever entered the world, that was uh, Adam's mandate as the original man, the first Adam. Now he failed, and everybody after him failed until Christ. And Christ succeeded, and he sent the Holy Spirit, and now we can succeed as we spread the gospel 
from the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now back to text. The second aspect of this purpose of Timothy to establish and exhort them in the faith is to ensure that, quote, no one be moved by these afflictions. The phrase, these afflictions, can include many things that are designed to cause the Thessalonians to veer off course, to leave the path of the Lord, or to be stopped, or delayed in their Christian progress, or to be distracted from their purpose as Christian believers. The Thessalonians were suffering very substantial attacks by those who hated the church, as we saw in chapter 2, as we will see in a couple of weeks in chapter 2. Do you remember the description of the opposition that the church was facing? This is what it says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. As we think about these three aspects of Timothy's ministry, we see that Paul and Silas had confidence in Timothy's ability to serve the church in Thessalonica. They had worked together for some time and been through a number of different events in Lystra and the Macedonian call and in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, experiencing together significant danger, conflict, and the blessed response of people hearing and believing. The churches being formed, people coming to Christ, such as Lydia and the Philippian jailer. Although Timothy was not in jail with Paul and Silas, he likely was separated from them. During those few months, Paul and Silas and Timothy had many experiences together. So Paul and Silas were familiar with Timothy's ability and dedication. He was young. He did not have a long time of experience, but he had experienced a great many things in this short time. And so had obviously learned a great deal during his young life and has already earned the confidence of Paul and Silas. There's no indication here in these verses that Timothy was some kind, some, somehow lesser or some kind of second string to Paul. He was sent with a very important mission that was likely to substantially impact the church. In verse 5, Paul, now speaking in the first person singular, speaks of a fourth aspect of Timothy's ministry, that Timothy was not only to minister to the church, but he was also to do some fact-finding. Paul wanted to learn about the condition of the faith of the members of the church. In verses 1 and 5, Paul repeats the statement, when we can bear it no longer. Except in verse 5, he's now speaking in first-person singular. Paul admits he is anxious and afraid for the safety of his children in the faith. It's a natural thing for a person to worry about those they love. The intensity of Paul's emotional involvement with this church is expressed in very vivid and intense terms in this letter. And Silas and Timothy shared that same uh, intense involvement. He says, When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul needed to know that his children in the faith were okay, that they were safe in the Lord. He was worried about the tempter's wiles. 
He was aware of the influence that Satan could bring to bear against this young church and its faith. So they sent Timothy not only to teach and encourage, establish and exhort you in the faith, but to learn about your faith. I believe the final phrase in that sentence, our labor would be in vain, is significant. It reveals a lot about the purpose of the ministry of these missionaries. They know their ministry is all about faith. No faith, no church. The tempter has a purpose to undermine the faith of the church. And the missionaries were concerned that this undermining would move the church out of the faith. The tempter uses affliction and suffering, but he uses whatever he thinks will work to undermine faith. He is an opportunist, and he is skillful. But his work is constrained by God. He cannot go beyond what will God allow. The book of Job is clear about that. Let's look back at verses 3 and 4 for a minute. They read, That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you know yourselves that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul is reminding them about the affliction and suffering and persecution that are the lot of the church. Here is a return to the teaching briefly mentioned in 1.6, 1 Thessalonians 1.6, and much affliction. You may remember the opposition and maneuvering of the enemies of the gospel. The Thessalonians must be prepared for them. They should not be surprised by suffering or by intense and hostile opposition to our sharing the gospel or to the spread of the gospel. Paul reminds them that he has been teaching them that in this spiritual warfare, there are physical aspects. The battle between the church and the world is a spiritual battle, but there are many physical consequences and ramifications. It was a theme that Paul taught. In verse 4, he says he kept telling them ahead of time that this would happen and that it would be painful. There would be suffering and there would be a struggle involved. He knows of their affliction and that knowledge causes him anxiety. Maybe they had been moved away from their faith. Paul and Silas and Timothy are telling us something in this letter. The spiritual battle is real. It impacts us. If we lose a battle, there will be destructive results in our Christian lives. Sin in a believer, even if provoked by affliction by enemies of the church, has painful consequences. People get hurt, really, by sin. Churches can be hurt. The love of the saints can be chilled. Many tragic consequences can happen when we sin. We must be diligent against sin and its effects. The missionaries were worried that sin might have hurt the church in Thessalonica. But it didn't. And that brings us to the second main point today, Timothy's great report in verses 6 through 10. You can sense the joy in verse 6, right? But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. That's beautiful. Timothy brought good news. The news is so good that it's like the proclamation of the gospel. The content of this good news is it contains their faith and love. That's the core of the church, right? Faith and love. 
Remember in chapter 1, verse 3 of Thessalonians, it says, your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Faith, love, and hope. In the first, first few verses of 1 Thessalonians. And here we have faith and love again. Paul is emphasizing faith and love now. Of course, hope still remains. Timothy brought the news the missionaries wanted to hear. They brought the news of the steadfastness of faith and hope in the church and love in the church. In addition, Timothy reported that the love between the missionaries and the church was enduring and strong. The church remembered Paul and Silas and Timothy fondly, and the church was missing the missionaries, just like the missionaries were missing the folks of the church. This was also news they were looking for. And this good news had the expected effect on the missionaries, as we read in verse 7. They were comforted. Their fears and anxiety were allayed. They were distressed and afflicted, but now they're comforted. And the comfort is mainly a result of the faith of the church. We were comforted about you through your faith. And in verse 8, they add intensity to the thought. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Notice that the spiritual health of the church in Thessalonica was a life or death matter to the missionaries. Their deep abiding desire for the church to grow and thrive, but especially to stand fast in the Lord. The idea of standing, being steadfast, this idea is present in every one of Paul's letters, except for Philemon, which is really short. It's a consistent theme, as well as in the rest of Scripture. I want to highlight now how this is an important thing to remember daily, just as we are to strengthen our faith every day, just as we are to renew our repentance every day. We are also to remain unmoved every day. We are to remain steadfast in our faith. It's an important thing for us to remember it's also an important thing for us to teach to, their, to our children and to model to our children. That's not easy because the concept of consistency for a young child and their concept of time is very short-sighted. But we need to work on that. When one of our children comes to make profession of faith before the congregation, in the meeting with that young person, I emphasize that this profession of faith must be something that is completely settled in their minds. They are to be permanently content with their faith, that their faith will not be subject to change. It will be attacked, but it will not be subject to change. That's what's happened with the Thessalonians. Their faith had been attacked, but it was steadfast. Remember in verse 3, the concern was that no one be moved. And here, Paul and Silas and Timothy say, Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. We, along with our children, are to remain steadfast, to stand firm through all circumstances. The Holy Spirit in us will enable us to remain steadfast and stand firm. It is not all on our shoulders to remain steadfast, but it's the work of the Spirit but it takes effort and concentration on our part, our synergism with the Holy Spirit. But we do have the promise from Jesus that no one will snatch us out of our Father's hands. In verses 9 and 10, there's a question. What thanksgiving can we return to God? And here we are on Thanksgiving Sunday. What thanksgiving can we return to God? And 
Paul, he's asking this question because his heart is so full, he can't figure out how to express his thanksgiving. You can see that in this sentence. What thanksgiving can we return to God for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? His heart is so full, it's about to bust. Burst. So, uh, Paul and his friends are at a loss. They can't give all the thanks that the Lord deserves to give. The goodness of the Lord and his kindness in giving such deep and rich joy to them is beyond any ability they have to thank the Lord. Do you know this feeling? Someone does so, something so wonderfully good, so wonderfully nice, that you can't say it. You don't know how to thank them, much less repay them. That's what Paul and friends are talking about. They can't find a way to thank God for this joy. You can see in these two verses that the context is the context of praying without ceasing. In verse 10, we read that they are praying most earnestly night and day. Not a quick little prayer, not a casual prayer, but an intense, earnest, prolonged prayer. In, verse, in chapter 5, it says pray without ceasing, and Paul's already doing it here. <clears throat> Paul must have had a great emotional capacity. He is constantly aware of how important the spread of the gospel is and the growth of the church and bringing people into the faith. Paul knows that these things have lasting, eternal consequences. And this realization enables Paul and his friends to maintain a constant earnestness. Their concern is deep. Their love is deep. Their love and concern know no fatigue They're constantly energized. Notice the prayer of thanksgiving in verse 10 has two petitions. What are these? They're related. First is the request that the desired face-to-face meeting can finally happen. When you look at the beginning of the Paul's second missionary journey, uh, that missionary journey starts out with Paul's concern about the churches that he planted in his first missionary journey. He says, Let's go and see how these churches are doing. And see, that's what's going on here. That's the same heart of Paul. He loves these churches. He wants to see how they're doing. He wants to go back and see them again. Paul wants his own face-to-face meeting. And second, there is the desire for them to supply what is lacking in your faith. He still needs to do more ministry there. He's aware of that. Now, that's a harbinger of things to come in chapters 4 and 5 of this, book, of this book. Hopefully, we'll consider them at a future time. There are still some things lacking in the faith of the church in Thessalonica. There may be problems that need to be addressed. There is growth that needs to happen in the faith of the church. The church needs to grow. Paul wants to be there, but he can't yet. Satan has been hindering them. We see that in the previous chapter. So these verses 6 through 10 are emotional and joyful. Thanksgiving and additional petitions. Verse 11 through 13 are the third of the three paragraphs. And they're a prayer and a benediction. The third point of the message is here, the rich prayer of blessing from the missionaries. There are three May phrases in this section. First, 
the prayer that our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. This is a recurrent theme. Here he's essentially praying for the Lord to end the hindrances of Satan keeping him away. And as far as I know, he did not get back to Thessalonica uh, for some time after this letter and even after the second letter. He did get back to Macedonia during his third missionary journey some years later, maybe four or five years. So that's probably when this prayer was answered, yes. The second and third petitions are related. The second petition is that the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. A beautiful request. This is a thing that we can include in our prayers for each other and for other believers. And it's a thing we can pray for ourselves. That the Lord make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all. We know that this prayer was answered affirmatively by the Lord because in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we read that the faith and love were there and were growing. I quote, your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So we see the answer to the prayer here in 2 Thessalonians. And finally, the related third petition is in verse 13. It's very rich. He is asking the Lord to provide that the result of the increasing love among the saints will be that the hearts of the people be established firmly and blameless in holiness. Notice that the blameless and holiness are related to increasing and abounding in love. The holiness that is in the hearts of believers and that it is established or produced by the Lord. So holiness and love go together. You can't be holy and not loving. The Holy Spirit produces holiness in the heart of the believer and also love. We can't be fully holy in our own strength or goodness. Our true holiness is that we are in Christ, the truly holy one. And in Christ, we will have increasing and abounding love for each other as Christ has loved us and as the Father has loved us in His Son. The holiness that's being spoken of here is spoken of as before our God and Father, or in the presence of God, or in the view of God, which is how everybody lives. As we wonder about the holiness being described here, we see the final phrase in the chapter, at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints, which provides the context for that third petition. We are again placed in position of anticipating the return of our Lord Jesus. In the previous chapter, we learned about Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here, the intention again is to focus their attention on the second coming. And that's a great thing to do. Uh, Paul, in the books of First and Thessalonians, both has a very strong emphasis on the second coming, the return of our Lord, the gathering of the saints. It's a wonderful set of books to read for that point of view. Living in the anticipation of the return of Christ is a very victorious and a very hopeful way to be. Paul and friends are encouraging the church to take the long view, the eternal view of their lives. And Paul is right, of course. We are at our best when we are thinking about the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. We do well to be looking forward to that time eagerly. We do well when we are reminding ourselves that there is nothing here on earth 
despite its many attractions and pleasures, that can hold a candle to the bright future when the Lord Jesus comes with all his saints, the second coming. Then things will be better, better than we can even imagine. We know that many trials and sufferings will be over and done. We know that there will be the gathering of the saints and worship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And we know that there will be love, richer and more captivating than anything we've ever experienced. And there are many wonderful things awaiting us beyond those. Our thoughts are at their most hopeful when they are on the hope of heaven. So today we've considered that the Lord provides richly for his church, loving and giving love. We have seen three aspects of that rich provision. First, the trusted ministry of Timothy. Second, the great report of Timothy to Paul and Silas. And third, the rich prayer of blessing from the missionaries. May the prayer to the Thessalonians be for us. So let us pray that prayer. Heavenly Father, may the Lord, may you, make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that the Lord may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before you at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen.